I just worked out too, so I'm like, um, my adrenaline's good right now, but like, I'll probably like fade in like an hour. So we got to get it done before then. <laughs> <laughs> Behold! The Sword of Power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho Galio Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're tackling Excalibur number 87, Back to Reality, aka part two of Escape from Genosha. And it's easier said than done when stuff won't stop exploding and some mutants can't keep their hot knives in their pants. Excalibur number 87 was originally published in March 1995, and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Ken Lashley on pencils, Tom Wegerson on inks, Joe Rojas on colors, Richard Starkings on letters, and Suzanne Gaffney and Bob Harris on editing. You're here to check up on me, I take it? To see if my paradise is truly that? Nine. They seek only refuge. They left the X-Men after... after the blessed. Genosha is a sanctuary, Nightcrawler. For all of us. And if you don't believe me, I invite you to see for yourself. I will grant you full access. Go anywhere, see anything, talk to anyone. I'll even provide you with a tour guide. Welcome back for yet more of the Excala chat you crave and we curate. But who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard, actual PhD in literature, honorary PhD in Lucifer fan fiction, X-Men stuff, and cinnamon-flavored candies. Some of the times expert in super sex and sequential scholar and Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. Sure, he's crashed another plane, but it was not his fault and never is. Maybe the big blonde guy with Superman powers might have lent a hand. I don't know. Seems like something he'd be able to do. It's never Kurt's fault. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Please reacquaint us with your context. You know, I had an argument with somebody a couple of years ago about um, about the Marvel movies and about how the, the, the snap and everybody blinking out of existence for five years was was stupid. Because if that were to happen and it would be the only thing that anybody would ever talk about ever again. And it's weird to bring it up <laughs> in a conversation the way that, like, you know, we frequently bring up 9-11 still or even Vietnam. There are like, you know, or the Holocaust. There are things that happen in our past, in our real world, where it's like, you know, 9-11 colored every aspect of our lives for the next 22 years last month last week for us as listeners everybody got blinked out of existence you know <laughs> it's not mentioned in this book so um i i guess who i am in the context of my life doesn't matter it's meaningless i could be anybody who cares i, I guess if you care my name's christopher maverick but you can call me mav and i co-host this show and another show called vox popcast and i'm a 
professor, teaching professor of digital narrative interactive design at the University of Pittsburgh. But again, context irrelevant. I could be anybody. I could just change my personality on a dime. Nothing matters. There is no God. There is nothing. This is just the, oh I'm praying for the sweet release of death and oblivion because why, why else? Wow. Who cares? An, an apocalypse, perhaps. Sure. Oh. Um, one might even is that say. that what happened? I wouldn't know because it's not mentioned. <laughs> Who knows? Andrew, please spill your state secrets. Uh, Weapon X is a 100% accurate account of Canadian military tactics. And 100% hot. Hudson's Bay <laughs> Company is is on that. Yeah, it's just HBC all over again. Uh, I'm Dr. J. Andrew Devan, a lecturer at St. John's University and co-project lead for Sequential Scholars, where we're counting down the weeks and days until the federal government tells us that they won't fund our comics laboratory because <laughs> Twitter problematic. So that's a thing. We also just finished a unit on Silver Age comics, and I was once again in awe of Anna's analysis, especially of all things early Marvel, and it is really cool to read something amazing and then realize that your name is also kind of attached to the project, so you get to bask oh a little bit, God. and I was basking. Oh my god, that's so nice. I feel like I'm just reusing a bunch of old dissertation stuff, but it's nice to get to put it on Twitter instead of it just <laughs> living in my dissertation that nobody reads. So that's nice. But you hit all the targets for Marvel. It was amazing. Yeah, at the time of this recording, we've still got a few more to go. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, Twitter will disappear in like three more weeks, and then, you know, um, you'll be able to use it again on the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I look forward to that. <laughs> right side. Right, right side. We need on TikTok. Oh, God. <laughs> I won't be dragged kicking and screaming onto TikTok. I did say that about Twitter at one point, though, so we'll see. <laughs> anyway, um, speaking of dissertations, we are joined by a fabulous guest who I quoted many times in mine, and we've been hoping to get on the Same. on the podcast for a while. The pod is ecstatic to welcome Dr. Neil Shaminsky. Welcome, Neil. Thank you for having me. We are so thrilled to have you. I'll give you a little build up and then we can talk about X-Men message boards, which was in your bio. And then I was like, oh, shoot, I want to talk about that. I forgot about that. Anyway, <laughs> so Dr. Neil Shabitsky is an English professor at Cambrian College in Sudbury, Canada, and has published almost exclusively on superheroes and comic books. Related to this, he co-edited a book on Canadian popular culture, which was published in 2019. On the more Spanish side of things, he created the X-Universe message board at comicboards.com back in 1997, which he moderated for exactly a decade, which was the internet's most popular X men forum for most of that time i'm so eager to talk about that but first let us do your comics origin story neil which might be related to that or might not when does your love of comics date back to when did you fall in love with funny books so i started collecting uncanny x-men comics um i can actually trace it back to november 1988 so i was maybe six years old and that is where my wow. X-Men comic book run begins. Do you remember what issue? Yeah, was that Inferno? Uh, that, it was actually um, the very middle, appropriately enough, the very middle of the first Genosha storyline. Ah. Okay, okay. And so, like, did you read all through? Like, I mean, is that your origin story and you just kept at it, like, throughout your uh, teen years, right into ad adulthood? Uh, I, I took a, a, there was a break. There was a break for about, a year after Chris Claremont left. Mm -hmm. um, but otherwise, it's an uninterrupted run. Now, I don't still possess all of those comic books. Um, but yeah, more or less, uh, we're talking about, what is that now? Like 35 years of X-Men comics? 
Yeah. You're asking, do, I don't think anybody here does math in their heads. Uh, no, 90, I, I like need left 94. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's just wild. We had a bunch of X-Men coverage come out today on Comics XF because Sins of Sinister is starting at the time of this recording. And I'm just like, sometimes I'll be talking to people and they'll be surprised that X-Men is still happening. But I'm in this space of like people who really care about current X-Men. And I'm just like, oh, God, there's so much. Oh, God, you don't care about this. Why would you? You don't have to. It's fine. Um, <laughs> it's just such a weird can I, can I have a, a sense of sinister aside that I'm not going to be able to say anywhere else? And it just so happens that I happen to host an X-Men podcast. So I want to point something out. So for the sense of sinister, there is one variant cover. It's got Bishop and Dazzler. And I can't remember who else because I'm not looking at it right now because I just watched it today. Um, an homage to Strike First Meridory, We Who Are About to Die. Have you ever heard of it? I didn't think so. Nobody has. It's a comic that Marvel ran that only I read. I'm the only one. So if you happen to go into your store and you see that there's a variant cover for Strike Force Meridory pretending to be, uh, it, uh, it, it pretends to be Strike Force Meridory and it says We Who Are About to Die and then it just says X Men Sins of Sinister tiny in the corner and you wonder why would they do this? Who is this for? It's for me. I bought this only because <laughs> of that cover. I'm the one person in the pl on the planet who went hell yeah, Strike Force Meridory. I wasn't interested in this trade and this crossover. Now I am. Now I'm fully aware that this is totally a sales gimmick and almost certainly nothing having to do with Strike Force Meridory. That comic that none of you have ever heard of and have no idea what I'm talking about. Almost certainly none of that has anything to do with anything and it's just a sales ploy just to make me personally christopher maverick buy this comic but thank you marvel for doing that just for me <laughs> wow that was an excellent aside thank you for pulling us aside <laughs> to discuss that ha really have, have you ever heard of strike force murdery we who are about to die i i uh -huh, know of see? it i have not read it <laughs> <laughs> and true neil it's, it's, it's literally just me it's just for me <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, Neil, and coming back to you, tell us about the message board because I want to talk about it. What was the origin of that? And I want to hear I want to hear stories about it. I want to hear about the good, the bad and the ugly. I love talking about histories of X-Men fandom. So let's start with the origin of it. How did that how did that come about? You know, I'm afraid I, I don't have uh, any sort of uh, particularly exciting origin story for you. It um, Comicboards.com was just a, a bunch of, you know, your standard mid-90s online comic book bulletin boards. And uh, they didn't have an X-Men board. You know, I, I don't know why, which is why I complained until they let me create one. And it's really that simple. How was your experience there? I mean, I've been on X-Men forums before. Things can get contentious. Would you say that you had an overall positive experience or were there contentious moments in that space? Oh, it's it's always, always contentious. Um, <laughs> you know, comic book fans have this often deserved reputation for just getting lost in the minutiae, you know? Uh, and no more so than on comic book message board in 1997 where people just have arguments over some of the the most ridiculous plot points and superpowers and speculating about backstories in ways that would strike anybody who's outside of the community um as possibly insane um <laughs> it, it was it was a weird place and um and and like you read in my bio, I stayed there for exactly 10 years, not 10 years and a day. <laughs> Toward the end, I, I made a deal with myself. I'm like, I'm going to hit that 10-year anniversary, and then I'm just running. 
I am closing the door and never coming back. Um, and that's what I did. I, I had had enough. <laughs> yeah, I feel like my memory of, I wasn't on the CBR X-Men boards all that long, like a couple of years, uh, mostly talking about Nightcrawler stuff with my little friends. But like, still, the, the thing that I found interesting about the X-Men board, as opposed to some of the other ones, was how cliquey it was and how really it was kind of almost <laughs> modeled after the drama of X-Men. You know, people had their favorite characters, <laughs> we'd be putting other people down, and like it was really personal. <laughs> Whereas like a lot of the others was like, I go onto the Spider-Man one and they would be talking about the plot. But in the X-Men one, it was just like, no, I'm repping Pixie. This is what we're doing. And it was like, okay, <laughs> like that's fine. But like I did find it a little bit exhausting sometimes. I was like, well, I don't hate any characters. They're not real. It's fine. Can we just talk about stuff? But it it's got a real little to bit me. exhausting. I know. I know. I get that. I do. It's real to me too, but like also it's not real to there me. is a I mean, difference like, <laughs> to be fair though i'm like yes if you if you've listened to our show before which i assume people have i, I i'm the one who cares least about any of this so mm -hmm, it's like mm -hmm. yeah whatever <laughs> it's so funny though was it the kind of space like did you have creators stopping by and stuff or was it mostly just like a fan base space we did we had uh there were a few writers that would pop in every now and then. Um, never when they were active on the books, though, which is probably for the best, because the very harshest critics would show up in these forums, right? It, it's it, incredibly nostalgic sorts of spaces, and so uh, nothing ever lived up to what came before. So I wouldn't wish that sort of discussion or commentary on anyone who was actively creating stories at the time. Yeah, yeah, I get that. <laughs> Being a writer for X-Men is often a thankless task. Every time somebody likes a writer of X-Men, I'm just counting down the days until they hate him. Uh, it's usually <laughs> him, but not always. But still. Uh, well, let me ask you the broader-based X-Men question then. I mean, what draws you to this world? You know, what kept you invested in this space for so long? So I, I, I think, you know, this is a bit of a... A retrospective construction, I'm sure, because at six years old, when I started reading this, uh, I'm sure I could not have put it in these terms. Sort of generally speaking, the X-Men has typically been rare in that they are one of those, one of few, if not like a totally unique superhero team that isn't fighting for the status quo. You know, like typically superheroes are there to, to maintain the law and the moral order and the X-Men um, have this very odd relationship to it where they're like, actually, you know, the, the moral order might be bad, guys. Like this, <laughs> this place is intolerant. It is discriminatory. And, and we got to change things. I do think that one of the reasons that they appealed to me when I started reading comic books is uh, that I got into the X-Men during that brief moment in time where you could reasonably argue that they were acting like villains. Mm -hmm. You know, they were operating out of Australia. They were teleporting into places, overthrowing governments, um, threatening them with repercussions if they don't change, and then jumping to the next disaster, which is a lot like, you know, the, the, uh, the procedure of, by which the Brotherhood of Mutants 
was operating at that time or previous to that time. There's also that that funny moment where the Brotherhood became Freedom Force and now they are the ones fighting in favor of government, the law, and order. Um, Just to hammer home that point that that the X-Men were on, you know, the side of moral good, but that wasn't necessarily the side of the law. Which is just, like, what a novel place for a superhero comic book to be around 1990. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think some of the conversations that have existed around vigilante justice in the superhero space have been, yeah, like, the most interesting within the X-Men space, and you're bringing up a lot of reasons why. I mean, connected to that, let me ask you why you wanted to make studying comics and superheroes part of your academic practice because I think it's probably going to be related to some of that stuff that you just said but yeah how did that kind of come about was it always part of your academic practice so I completed my undergraduate degree back in like 2000 to 2004 so I, I don't think I can really say that it was always a part of my academic practice because I didn't really recognize that it was an option yeah. until the end of that and and there was always a lot of pushback when I would try to go in that direction. I remember having a conversation, and this would have been in 2005, with uh, my my master's supervisor. Uh, and when I told her that I wanted to study comic books, her response was, um, well, you realize you'll have to justify your interest in ephemera. <laughs> right? Right? Like, we can laugh about that now, but... Um, I'm sure I, that I've in- had this conversation. So. I know we've I have, I've had a very similar one. I've, I've, I've had nigh word for word that conversation. Yeah, and and you know when you're like a master's student and I'm like 23 years old, I'm I'm trying to apply to PhD programs. I'm trying to plot a, like an academic career. Um, and here I have someone telling me very gently, you are trying to study trash and uh, maybe you should reconsider. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it, it, it did not come easily. I feel like, you know, I was lucky that I subsequently found people who are very supportive. It, it wasn't an easy thing to do. I, I can't imagine that it's still all that easy a thing. It's not like you can just throw a dart and hit a, a comic or graphic novel studies program. Those of us who study them are, are still, uh, you know, scattered all about these other disciplines. But, but I have to hope that it's easier now for people who want to get into the field than it was for me at the time. Well, let me, I'm still going to push you on it a little bit, because what was like kind of the thing that kind of made you want to persevere with it? Like, what kind of questions did you want to kind of pursue in this space? So before I get to the questions, I should say, you know, part of what interested me was like the novelty of it, um, that it was so difficult to find people who were doing this work. Right. Um, That it was difficult to, to find the work, period. Uh, You know, you could find a lot of words written about comic books and superheroes, but that didn't mean that, you know, there were academic journals overflowing with this kind of work. Uh, So the the chance to to feel like I was on the ground floor of something was was really appealing. Uh, I I think that still brings a lot of, you know, 19 and 20 20 year olds to it now. But then in terms of like the the topics, um, the issues, my favorite X-Men growing up was Wolverine. You know, Wolverine is probably still my favorite comic book character, period. I, you know, so so why did I, why did I love Wolverine? You know, he's this angry little Canadian uh, 
until I had a growth spurt when I was 15 years old. Um, I was an angry little Canadian. Uh, so, so then, you know, it's, it's only though, as, as I start getting older and, you know, and I read more and more Wolverine issues that I realize, you know, maybe he's not the best character to identify with. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's, homicide thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but, but it's like honorable homicide, right? Like there's a difference. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's then it it's through like interrogating, you know, my interest in Wolverine. What is it that I find appealing about Wolverine? Um, that I think I I ended up coming into feminism as a teenager, and you know, the study of masculinity. Like, oh wow, here's my mind mm-hmm. being blown that that there are like entire fields and books written about the study of men and masculinity from a feminist perspective. And I think that characters like Wolverine, um, superheroes as power fantasies, as these uh, idealized bodies and forms of masculinity and masculine practice that led me to that place. So, so I would say, you know, that's really what brought me to superheroes, wanting to know, like, what, why is it that I found Wolverine so appealing? Yeah, I that's pretty much exactly my origin story, Neil. <laughs> Different characters, but pretty much the same otherwise. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, yeah, I'm sad that we don't get to talk about Wolverine in this one. Yeah, you reached out because I was looking for somebody for the issue that we did have him in, and uh, we had Justin Weigard for that one. It had a great combo, but... Uh... I don't think we're going to get him again, but I'm glad that you mentioned it off the top so we could get to talk about him a little bit with you. Any excuse to talk about Wolverine. I love it. I love it. He's a fascinating character. One of those characters that I have a love-hate relationship, which I've written about a little bit myself. (laughs) Um, All right, let's do the issue summary and then I'll, I'll get your thoughts on this particular issue. Oh, this issue summary, I did not do a good job on. We'll see how we do. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never spit in your coffee or give you cause to fear that we did. To prove what gracious hosts we are, here is a tasty plot summary. Excalibur number 87 opens sort of where Excalibur number 86 left off, except that the reality-displacing event that caused the world as we know it to crystallize has ended, meaning Excalibur are uncrystallized and are now plummeting straight toward the ground of Genosha in the new midnight runner plane honestly i forgot about the age of apocalypse thing and what the heck happened there (laughs) and i had to piece this out and yeah anyway age of apocalypse happened and we're back now if you didn't catch that that's understandable because they just say the word apocalypse a lot and you're supposed anyway if you were reading x-men comics at the time you would have noticed anyway megan helps quell the flames using her newfound elemental powers which lends kurt enough control to land the plane maybe but that was the past hard cut to the present where kitty recalls the near crash they all survived as you'll recall excalibur is in genosha at the request of black air and the coalition government to locate the origin of mutant-specific ammunition used in the new Civil War. While Kitty is thinking thoughts, Pete Wisdom offers her coffee, assuring her he didn't spit in it. Ah, romance. Sometime later, Doug Lock drives the team in an old Jeep across the ditches and craters of Genosha's capital, Hammer Bay, hoping the lab of Dr. Moreau can clear up some of this nonsense. Hard cut to two weeks ago, 
the moment Excalibur crash-landed and find themselves fending off both sides of the conflict and wondering if one side's better than the other. Oh no, they both sides it. Meanwhile, Brian recognizes the scene from the vision in the previous issue and realizes the future he saw is coming true. In the commotion, Pete Wisdom reluctantly unleashes his mutant power. Hot knives, baby. Pete falls to his knees and looks at his hands, mumbling that he never wanted to hurt anybody. He's so sensitive. So sensitive. Back in the present, Katie reveals Pete didn't kill that guy, and then they arrive at the lab, getting through security with all of their useful mutant powers. The son of Dr. Moreau despairs at the revelation of his father's bigoted crimes, creating the mutates. But after Doug Lockdown loads the professor's voice recordings, they find he was given the formula by someone else. Someone in England, perhaps. Psst, it was Brian's dad. It was Brian's dad all along. <laughs> Stuff eventually explodes and Excalibur regroup outside the old Moiro home as Kitty mumbles that the truth about Genosha has gone up in smoke along with the truth about the bullets, adds Brian. Watching from a distance, agents of Black Air, Threadgold, and Secluna are watching. Threadgold tells Michelle that Excalibur look a bit miffed, but nonetheless, they did the job that Black Air wanted them to. Secluna agrees and adds that they have stirred things up. Secrets like the mutate bonding process will rise to the surface in time, and Black Air will be there to skim them off. Oh, Black Air, they are so dastardly. We'll see more of them. Anyway, Neil, first impressions of this comic. What, if anything, are you interested in talking about? First impressions, I, you know, it, so this comic reminded me why I stopped buying single issues. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I, I, reading this in isolation, like just what the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. It, it, how, it, one thing that it reminded me that, that I do miss though, uh, are written accents in comic books. <laughs> I have so much fun with with these written accents and and Warren Ellis is you know he, he's not embracing it in quite the same way that you know Chris Claremont did but it, it's I realized that without the written accent I almost always default to just like a standard American accent yeah. when I'm yeah. reading along in my head um, and I need I need that visual reminder to you know jumpstart my brain to remind me that oh right right you know Pete Wisdom is not American right <laughs> it's um, not that he didn't spit in the coffee it's that he ain't spat in it it's a small thing it's 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 goofy it's silly it's cheesy but it's the sort of thing that only comic books can get away with and i enjoy them for that oh <laughs> i love that that's very charitable neil <laughs> we'll get back to we'll get back to some stuff about the genosha metaphor and stuff but let me pick out pick up some first impressions from everybody else andrew what was your reaction to this one we didn't have you on the pod last week so (laughs) give us your thoughts on where we are yeah there's a lot here i actually kind of like i agree the story is all over the place one of the things that we were talking about before the recording that I think is really fascinating is sort of like minutia is that this is the first issue of Excalibur where they don't have the actual issue number in the corner box and trying to make sense of why that is, is very difficult because like that's such a cruel thing to do to people who are rifling through bins, trying to get the issue numbers that they missed. But like, maybe that was the point. I know Mav had some good theories. I have no yeah. idea why you would do this. God, I have no idea. What's your theory, Mav? I, I, I don't know if this is right. All I know is years later, Bendis was asked, so now he's not there yet, so this would have been maybe a decade later. Bendis was asked, 
why do you get why do you guys keep rebooting the, the issue numbers when are you going to stop doing that because you know it's really annoying to collectors and, and it's making things hard why you know why aren't you going to be proud of like the you know the high numbered issues and Bendis basically answered we're not going to stop doing it because number one sell better and that's why we're doing it and the guy was very offended because like how dare you you know we're, you know that's a horrible cynical thing and he's like we're a company and number one sell better than others and he was basically explaining that when people they'd done research and they'd found that when people saw a really high issue number um sometimes that was intimidating because they felt like they didn't know where the story was and this is oh how, how do i jump on an issue under 87 there's 87 issues before this so i'm guessing maybe they'd stop doing this to not be intimidating like this and if you think this is kind of problematic then i say look at your copy of people or time or cosmo or playboy or you know national geographic or any other magazine you've ever read and you don't really look at issue numbers you just look at it's january 2023 and that's how issues work for everything else but because but comics sometime in the 1930s like people sort of tied into this idea of the next number and so we treat it like it's a sanctified thing when really it's just a copyright notice so i'm thinking maybe it's something to do with that but that said i'm also a nerdy collector so i agree it's annoying but i don't and i and i'm and i'm just speculating i do know you know i went through while we were looking i know it will be a while before it comes back it, we are yeah, missing flipped, the issue number I've, until I flipped I through up to ninety six and it was still gone. It's not, yeah, ninety seven is when it comes back. So oh. we've got the next ten issues is when we is we don't have an issue number on the cover. It's there in the indicia and in the barcode. Like you, you, yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to like know where to look. So. Yeah, that's it so bizarre. Weird. I had yeah, it is weird. I hadn't thought about <laughs> that at all. Uh, did you have other first impressions you want to get off your chest, Matt, before we jump into some other discussion? Oh, I didn't remember this issue existed. I think I'd wiped it from my mind because I don't know that I consider this an issue so much as I, I consider it, you know, um, 22 pages of very vaguely and loosely connected storyline. <laughs> this is confusing to me. I made the joke in our in my intro about like, you know, hey, we ended last issue worried that we were going to blink out of existence. And then that's not referenced at all here. Like you have no way of knowing that. I get that in the real time I was collecting. And so I knew about Age of Apocalypse and it had been, you know, three months of Age of Apocalypse comics and stuff. And, and, and I get that. But like, if you're not reading that, if you're not reading it at that time and you're maybe on a podcast 20 some years in the future, <laughs> trying to like you know re reread these issues it is very odd to just sort of do a storyline where you're like hey let's um let's just jump in to this story and then we're going to end on a cliffhanger and then just not address it at all the next issue we're not even we're going to pretend it never happened we're not going to worry about it and then even as soon as it happens it's like oh this thing that you know we were plumbing out of the sky but you know turns out that wasn't much of a big problem so we're going to be we're we're going to be done and we're we're just going to move on and go two weeks later like it's a weird thing to do so that's how i thought about this issue i forgot yeah. how appropriate it is that sins of sinister did start today given the age of apocalypse tie-in of this episode didn't even occur to me that's what's gonna happen there too uh mm -hmm. <laughs> spoiler but uh anyway um let's get into some more 
of the metaphor aspect of this comic because we got into some Genosha stuff in the last episode a little bit toward the end, but we didn't talk about it that much. And there's certainly some more room to talk about it. And I definitely want to talk to Neil about it because I know you've got lots of great thoughts about the mutant metaphor. So the piece of yours that we've mentioned on the pod before is an older essay of yours. I know you're going to feel like it's from a million years ago, but an older (laughs) piece called Mutant Readers Reading Mutants, Appropriation, Assimilation, and the X-Men. I know it's an older thing, but it's still something I think about a lot in terms of the ways it it articulates the mutant metaphor and some of the possibilities, but also problems with that metaphor. And we have mentioned it on the pod before, but we have you here. Would you, Neil, be willing to kind of walk us through your argument that you made in that piece about how the mutant metaphor functions? Sure. I'll I'll, I'll try to make it uh, as concise as I can. So the the argument in that article is that the the mutant metaphor, owing to the fact that the X-Men, the readers of the X-Men, certainly for the first 40 years that the book was in existence, tend to be young white men rather than reflecting some sort of authentic experience of oppression or otherness for the benefit of people who are oppressed or other instead offers something like like oppression tourism for people who don't have any firsthand experience of it so a way to to occupy that space you know for an episode for a, a brief moment in time and live it uh, as, as a sort of fantasy, you know, before stepping back into your own life. And what's unfortunate is that, you know, the readers of comic books, of X-Men books, do tend to identify as a kind of other, even if, uh, you know, and I'll put myself in this group when I was younger too, even if, if I'm a, a white man, I certainly didn't feel like I possessed all of this privilege. You know, I was a a little nerdy guy. And here I am being told that, you know, the the X-Men, that mutants are the oppressed other. And I'm like, you know what? I feel like that too. People pick on me. Uh, And so there's this really troubling um, sort of equivalence that people will draw out of it. And this is something that I would see all the time on that message board that I moderated. People who are like, yeah, you know, that I get it exactly. Like people shoot spitballs at me in class. That is just like being a mutant. And and you're like, whoa, wait, wait, what? And, and so that yeah, that is that's you know sort of the most troubling aspect of uh, the mutant metaphor for me. Yeah, it really clicked a lot for me when I first read your essay. When I was first starting to study superheroes, I read it pretty early when I was embarking on that journey, and I just. <sighs> I really had this feeling after I read it, like it really stayed in the back of my mind. And I wrote something about Alpha Flight and X-Men and multiculturalism, and I quoted you there. But then I was thinking about my affection for Nightcrawler, and this was like, you know, like 15 years ago or something, quite a while ago. And just, I remember having this feeling, and I like, I just really remember this, like, as a distinct moment of like, feeling like I really wanted to be Nightcrawler, because if I was Nightcrawler, all the ways that I felt like an outsider would make sense. You know, like being embodiedly Mm -hmm. different the way he was, like it would Mm -hmm. make sense somehow. And then I, as soon as I had that feeling, I was like, oh shit, that is not the right way to think about anything. That is Is a messed up way to think about. Well, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hedge on it a little bit because I think, 
I, I think I felt very guilty about it at the time, recognizing the appropriative aspects of that. I think mm -hmm. I'm a little mm -hmm. bit softer on myself about it now because I've realized some of the ways that the character interacts with disability and gender are things that I identify with. And it's not quite as simply appropriative as I thought it was at the time. And also that the metaphor can be very powerful because I want to talk about that aspect of it too. And I'm sure you have thoughts about that as well, Neil. But just, sure, yeah, sure. the danger of appropriation in that space is something that really stuck with me from your piece and that I always think about when I'm thinking about how that metaphor, how that metaphor works. You know, the amazing thing for me anyway, though, about the, uh, the story that you just told with Nightcrawler is that is exactly what Grant Morrison did with the U-Men where we had um, these, these, these non-mutant humans during Morrison's new X-Men run who were hunting down mutants so that they could steal their powers and be the mutants that they always felt they were on the inside. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Only now you can see it on the outside too. And I, I don't know where Morrison got that idea necessarily, but I, I, can, I can understand, I can appreciate that sort of desire, you know, to have everyone see um, externally that sort of otherness that, that you feel internally, which is totally valid, right? Uh, and, and I'm glad that you realized that, you know, you have to be kind to your younger self because that wasn't coming from a, a, a place of wanting to appropriate, even if it sort of runs that risk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I'm someone who studies the politics of desire and thinks through that a lot, right? I mean, even when I was younger, I was certainly thinking through that a lot. So I think it's important to sort of interrogate those desires when you have them. Yeah. But like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm gentler about... Uh, with myself about it now in the sense that I think I found eventually a lot of positive stuff with that, you know, like, oh, well, the character, the way the character is self-accepting and like takes pride in his difference can be something I can right. incorporate in the way I dress and present myself and stuff and kind of do it that way rather than kind of wanting to, because <laughs> I don't want to be Nightcrawler. He's got a horrible life. He like risks getting like beaten <laughs> up by mobs every time he leaves the house. It's terrible. That's not like really what I was responding to. It was more mm -hmm. just like something that the character could positively represent for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. But um, Mav, I know you had thoughts about this and you wanted to jump in because this is, this is a thing that we talked about many times on the pod, you know, yeah. like, is the metaphor good or bad? Like, what do we do with it? And I've, and I've said this a little bit before, but just to reiterate, I, I think is the, is the metaphor good or bad is sort of the wrong question. And I think I know, where, where I know. it comes, comes out is where, where Neil just said, you know, you know, be, you know, is it appropriative versus is it, you know, be kind to yourself. The thing that we have to remember is the mutant metaphor. It's not so much that you're doing it wrong. It's that the mutant metaphor is appropriative. That's what it is, right? Like the entire allegorical mm -hmm. function of what mutants are is, hey, let's steal this little bit of oppression from the Holocaust. Let's steal this little bit of oppression mm -hmm. from the civil rights movement. Let's steal yeah. this little bit of oppression from the legacy virus. So we're going to steal this from the AIDS crisis. We're going to steal this from, you know, like that's literally what it does. So in order to create this omni-oppressed group, right, this like our friend, friend of the show, Joe Dorowski, in his book, uh, his X-Men book, he talks about how, you know, about encountering uh, um i can't remember i can't remember which which author it was i think it's i think it's maybe it's inglehart or something one of the x-men authors encounters a fan who is like yeah i get it you're talking to me as a as a white nationalist and he's like no yes, no that's yeah. not my intention but like if you feel othered the very nature of creating a blanket othered group is that it necessarily 
can apply to anybody because that's the point. You can't say that it's supposed to apply to disabled people and black people and Latino people and uh, gay people and women, but not straight white guys. Like there's no, there's no way to write that. Like once you're like, like there's, there's, there just isn't a way to do it. So I, I think I, I get that it's there and I think you're going to see what you're going to see. To me, the the way to do it cautiously, I think this is, I mean, okay, so now cheating because I've fast forwarded 20 years and read all of Anna's work, right? Like is <laughs> how can I take what I'm reading and, and view it as a positive from my perspective as opposed to viewing it as a negative? In particular, the way you tend to write, for instance, is very personal. Not everybody does that. I don't do that. But like, if you're going to if you're going to take the metaphor to heart, can I take the metaphor to heart in a positive way? I think is how you avoid the appropriation issue. It just becomes a the goodness and badness becomes about what you do with it rather than you know, the the cultural critique, the socially the socio cultural cr critique of what you do with it rather than the omni critique of the inherent ethics of it. I do, I do want to say something in favor of the metaphor because I feel like I've I've said exclusively negative. <laughs> Please. So far. Mm -hmm. um, and that what I do like about it is that it, it gives us this version of comic book otherness that imagines being other as being something more, you know, being something special, unique. That 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 otherness is, you know, as the Xavier terms it, it's a gift. And that's really nice. Is it a gift that often comes paired with like a curse of some kind? Yes. Um, like they've read their fairy tales. Uh, you can't just have a gift without there being some sort of catch. But but I can certainly see that being tremendously appealing when, you know, how, what, what sort of characters does the term mutant normally get applied to in fantasy and science fiction? Um, they're monsters, and these these are not monsters. You know, these are uh, in many cases people just like us. But there's something special about them, and isn't that lovely? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I mean that's essentially what I kind of turned my affection for for Nightcrawler into. Just like that, I don't know that feeling of loving being a monster and thinking that that was okay, and like that. I realized, yeah. you know, in retrospect that that was what I was originally responding to in, in the character, but like sort of couldn't articulate it as well as when I came back to the franchise sometime later. But um, but Andrew, I wanted to get your voice on it, too, because obviously you're a Claremont spell. You've thought about this stuff so much. Like, I mean, we've talked about it on the pod before, but I mean, what's your take on it? Like, has it been sort of a valuable, has that metaphor been sort of a valuable influence in your life? Has it been something that you've had complicated feelings about? What do you think? Yeah, I think complicated feelings. I, I agree with with both Mav and Neil on this um and you as well Anna I, I think there are ways in which the way that the metaphor is executed are problematic and they raise things that we should absolutely be talking about but in terms of the capacity to tell a story that shows how marginalizing someone hurts how it sucks and in the hands of a good writer when you start to explore the nuances of what it means to be marginalized um, even though they're generalizing even though they're borrowing very specific details from other forms of oppression i, I do think there's kind of a, a universal human sympathy value to it that i i, I do like 
as I said, I think the execution is exactly as problematic as people point out. But I like the idea of not reading a story about people who are the the alphas of their respective communities being loved by everyone in a world that doesn't have any real world prejudices or biases. Um, so I, I think there's a, like a broader value to it. As I said, though, I, I think you can't really take that without being willing to explore and contextualize the way that it's being executed, um, which is why. I don't know. Neil's essay is quoted by every X-Men scholar ever so much uh, because we need it, right? It's really important. Yeah, and I think just within fan discourse, but within academia too, because this is a problem there as well. Like we sometimes have a uh, not us here, obviously, but you know, majority But like you know, keeping those two ideas in your head, right? That a thing can be problematic and still positive, and it can be both things. Mm-hmm. And but pop culture is usually almost always both things, right? Because yeah. to so, such a large extent, it depends what you do with it, right? I I, I think one of the um one of the things that i like to say about the metaphor and i think um mav you're you're touching on this is that it it embodies that cliche where like its greatest power is also its greatest weakness yeah it can be used to uh, i really thought you were gonna go with responsibility oh no no. (laughs) (laughs) hey hey weakness we're not here to talk about non-mutant superheroes come on (laughs) Yeah, but you know, it's its ability to adapt, to take on um, the signifiers, the markers of all of these individual um, social identities. Um, mm-hmm. It is is a wonderful storytelling gift. Um, you know, it can it can apply to a variety of people, a variety of situations. But that malleability, that adaptability, then collapses it all into this undifferentiated field of sameness, which I think is what then allows that white nationalist to say, hey, this is this is just like me. Yeah, (laughs) but I I guess what I'm saying is I think what makes it problematic is also the thing that makes it powerful. And Mm -hmm. and there's I don't know that there's a way to escape that other than to not do a metaphor right like if you do it if you were blatant with your allegory then it would be obvious but like i also don't think um not that i love this right like i I love the x-men but there's a reason more people care about the dark phoenix movie that came out at the end of fox's own ownership of x-men than care about the movie moonlight right like right. Moonlight is objectively a better movie. I say that as a <laughs> as a professional scholar and a professional critic. Moonlight is a better movie than Dark Phoenix. But go check and see how they did at the box office, <laughs> yeah. and and it doesn't. You know, like you can't just like hey, let's do a movie about queer African American men. This sounds like something that's going to connect with the people. I mean, it, it doesn't. You know, like I I, I get it. I, I get that you're. One of those gets to be popular. The other gets to be good. And um, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that, and I'm not saying that you can't be popular and good. I'm saying that in that particular case, one of them, and actually to be fair, the X-Men Dark Phoenix movie was not popular either. It bombed, right? But like even the bombing of that movie did better than the best picture winner. So like, you know. I, and I and I and I feel like that's like sort of the danger. I remember, so, like I've I've seen another you know getting into an argument with people who you know 
normal people, let people less evolved than us, you know, as, as, oh as Anna God. would say. Yeah, <laughs> something I say all the time. Yeah, right. But I got, into, I got into an argument with somebody once who was just like, well, you know, they'd heard that there was a point when, when Denzel Washington was up to play Superman back in like the 80s. And think about how much that would have changed his career and how great that would have been. And I said, and, but he took glory instead. And it's like, no, first off, it would not have changed his career. It would have tanked everything. I said, why? And I was like, because the 80s were a different place than, you know, mm. 2000, I think it was like 2019 at the time, but 2023, and we're still talking about maybe kind of, maybe we'll have a black Superman on tele, you know, a, a movie once maybe we'll see with michael b jordan like the you know the most popular actor like, like we'll, we'll try and we're not sure so like i don't think that w it would have worked back then i think it would have bombed at the box office and set things back because people would have not gone to see him just because a black guy was playing superman that would have been enough to to tank the movie and is that good no but that's pop culture and the reason you have people like the four of us studying it is because someone needs to learn how that works and it, it sucks, but I'm not saying it's good. It sucks that that is the case, that you can't just like say, hey, here's an enterprising story about, you know, I'm just thinking movies, movies in theaters right now. The Woman King. The Woman King is uh, is a movie about racism that probably has made $10 million at the box office, something like that. And it's been out for months. That's how it, that's how it works. Well, if I can say something positive about it, I mean, I've been reviewing Victor Laval's Two Saber Two series for Comics XF, and I'm just continually impressed the way that series does some really graceful things with the mutant metaphor. I mean, it's a very it's a very preachy series in some ways because he'll bring in these world real real world context stuff like uh, this month it was like you know hiring disbarred doctors to to work on Indian reservations. He brought that in and related that to the mutant metaphor. Last month, it was talking about the history of the birth control pill and, you know, testing on minority populations. So he's like mm -hmm. always bringing in stuff like this and sort of relating it to the context of the Krakoa era and, you know, disenfranchised mutants and who is left out of utopia and everything. And I don't know, I do think that there's a way to do it where you're making those real world connections and making it impossible not to see those real world connections but also making it clear that there's a difference between a black mutant in that space versus a white mutant in that space versus whatever mm -hmm. mutant in that space and that all those identities mean different things. And when I think about a comic like that, it handles it very gracefully, right? And it's very, again, it's a heavy-handed series in some ways, but it's just like, you know, all the characters that he focuses on are the black characters, right? Those are the ones that have the deepest connections with each other. Those are the ones that are supporting each other, even though it's a series about Sabretooth. That's not really what it's about. Mm -hmm. And that series gives me so much hope for sort of the usefulness of the mutant metaphor versus when we talked about Forge in <laughs> like a few issues ago, where we like, right. oh, well, he's put in this situation that's all about colonialism and they don't mention his heritage at all. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, to me, that's that's the bad version, right. right? And then the good version is like Victor Laval's Sabretooth that makes me feel like X-Men can do anything. It's so wonderful. Everyone needs to talk about this. So it's 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 two things, <laughs> at least two well, things. Well, it can be both, but like, but when you do that, yeah. you're going to have, and not that I think you should care, but you're going to have a certain element that's going to be, stop pushing politics into my comics. Why is everything going to be so woke? And it's like, because you didn't understand the point of Captain America punching Hitler in the face literally mm -hmm. 80 years ago. Like, you don't get mm -hmm. that this is, this is what comics are. And, but like... I mean, you're just going to like, that's the tension. And I, I think that sometimes I think there's room for both because I obviously will read, you know, 
I will read things that are explicitly about race or gender or sexuality. Uh, they're my favorite things, but like, I think that there's room for the metaphorical as well. Yeah. And I mean, I will say too, that I've, I've described the Victor Laval series in such high minded terms. It's also funny as hell. Like it's just a fun superhero <laughs> comic with a ton of really serious shit threaded through it. Anyway, Neil, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to add there that, you know, um, you know, speaking to the point about doing both, one of the things that I'm reminded of when I reread old Chris Claremont X-Men comics um, is that, you know, as much as he has this uh, reputation, he's known for developing the mutant metaphor, these all of these real world connections. If you were to measure it as like a proportion of the total volume of his work, those issues are like a relatively small minority yeah. of the narrative. Um, you know, what What did he like? He he liked ridiculous, fanciful <laughs> stories about magic. You know, the something like the... I, I sometimes say that the Dark Phoenix saga is both the, the most X-Men story and the least X-Men story. You know, why the most? Because people who are at war with themselves um, over their own unsatiable desires and thirsts for power is very Claremont. You know, he loves that shit. But, you know, it, it is very much detached from all of those uh, real-world politics that we now associate with the X-Men. And so somehow it manages being both, like, incredibly Claremont, and we associate it, you know, it, it's associated so closely with the X-Men brand. Um, comic book readers are, are constantly saying that like it's the greatest X-Men story, but it is missing all of these elements that we now think are fundamental to the X-Men. So yeah, it exists in this bizarre place where it is both the most and least X-Men story. <laughs> yeah, do you have thoughts about that, Andrew? You've lectured about Dark Phoenix Saga for my class before, and I we struggled <laughs> with that class. You did great, but I... <laughs> I did struggle teaching that one because like I wanted to talk about all this mute metaphor stuff and it really was like, well, that story is mostly about soap opera. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the mutant metaphor stuff is specifically foregrounded by two other stories, which would be God loves man kills and days of future past. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Those are the two that engages it now. Exactly. As Neil says, it's a small proportion, but those are like the two most taught X-Men stories. God loves man kills is the most taught and days of future past is up there. Dark Phoenix Saga is a little too weird and in continuity <laughs> to be easily accessible. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I think that definitely creates a little bit of a, a disproportionate understanding of Claremont's interest in the mutant metaphor. Uh, exactly as Neil says, he was, he was much more interested in telling more basic human stories using magic as a cipher to develop his characters. Yeah, I mean, it just, <laughs> there goes the Academy again, like manipulating history and convincing us some things are more canonical than others, <laughs> even in the realm of comics. But, it, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think we can just blame the Academy here. Like, this is also X-Men, yeah, yeah. like comic book mm -hmm. readers, right? Like, I, I remember point. once reading, somebody went through, I think it was every, every X-Men comic up to the end of the 90s to itemize all of the baseball games that the X-Men played. <laughs> um, which, you know, it's like, it's this trope that we love, right? Especially Chris Claremont, you know? It, Claremont loves a good baseball game. And then you count them up, and you can count all of Chris Claremont's X-Men baseball games on one hand. Yeah, it's like five, yeah. Yeah, it occupies it this like a, huge of part of our imaginary, but, but it barely ever happened. 
there are two Avengers ones in the same time period. So it's, <laughs> so, it's so it's not so it's not as uh, and they're two of my favorite Avengers stories. They're in annuals. Um, and so it seems like a, it seems like a very X Men thing, but it isn't. It's just the thing that they were doing in comics at that time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're speaking you're speaking Andrew's language, cataloging Claremont X Men. Yeah. Did 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 you do baseball games in your analysis, Andrew? No, we did not. But I can give you another one. Um, Psylocke kills more people than Wolverine uh, in oh, the comics that wow. Claremont wrote during X Men. I love that. That's incredible. That's a good one. I I remember you tweeting that out, and everyone was like, "What?" <laughs> I love it. All right, let's talk about a little bit about Genosha um, because we barely talked about oh, this comic, yeah, that's an... which which it's is very fine. <laughs> It's barely in this comic. I know, I know. It's the fundamental aspect that it barely matters. Well, did you have thoughts on it, Neil? I mean, we can relate it back to the conversation we've been having about the metaphor, if you want. I mean, do you find Genosha a useful metaphor in this space, like in general or in this comic in particular? Well, I I can tell you there there was a moment where it totally lost me. Um, I I grew actively hostile toward (laughs) this book. And and Anna, I think you, you sort of pointed towards it it was when yeah. they decided to both sides it yeah and i and i'm like oh no please and it's very heavy-handed right off the hop you know we have like the uh the, the magistrate says something like here's your welfare check which just uh more <laughs> analysis is trying so hard to say you know mutant metaphor that he's just bashing us over the head with it you know then we have the the, the mutate fighters who are hiding among the rubble and, and the characters of Excalibur notice this and, and are thinking about how jarring it is that they are effectively using these uh, starving homeless mutants as human shields. Yep. Uh, it's just, it's like, wow, everybody in this fight really sucks. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it was it was it was painful to read that battle scene, and it also had me thinking about how. Now, this is something I should have counted. I thought to count it, and I didn't. But how many times now have they gone back to the well of Genosha being this contested site um, where everything gets blown up, everything is destroyed, everybody is wiped out. <laughs> And how many times can you do that? I think at this point, you know, they had only really done it once. So you can't blame Warren Ellis for uh, reducing it to this um, post-apocalyptic battle zone. But wow, they have done it so many times since. Yeah, yeah, definitely one of those ones. I think we talked about this a little bit last week, but (laughs) the sort of um, diminishing returns is the phrase that I'm looking for in terms of the Genosian metaphor. Andrew, you didn't get a chance to talk about Genosa Genosha with us last week. Did you wanna did you wanna add anything? I mean, what's your kind of take on it as a metaphor? Um just just quickly, because um yeah, no, I I think um Jason Powell calls the Genosian saga, the first Genosian saga, um Claremont's best writing. I kind of agree. Um mm-hmm. and Extinction Agenda is an absolute mess as a crossover, but the three mm-hmm. Claremont Lee issues are spectacular with like really good character dynamics in them. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think when you talk about diminishing returns, I, I think one of the temptations of Genosha is, Genosha is just how good some of the storytelling was there. So yeah. I, I'm always going to be, you know, holding it up to that high bar. And that's probably not fair. Uh, as a metaphor for apartheid South Africa, 
yeah, I think it's interesting. It's it's again appropriative, <laughs> very very clearly. Mm-hmm. And once we get into Warren Ellis's version, where it's this this post apocalyptic wasteland with terrible people on all sides, I think you've lost a lot of the potential to say literally anything about apartheid South Africa at this point in time. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the politics of it is erased, which is either good or bad or both, in keeping with our earlier conversation. I, I do think that what. <laughs> The problem might be that I don't think Warren Ellis is very interested in Genosha. Mm. Um, He seems to be using it as an excuse to, to introduce like this uh, I'm I'm blanking on what it's called now, but this shadowy agency that Pete Wisdom works for. Oh, Black Air. Black Air. Yes. So it's being used more as an excuse to um, bring Black Air in, introduce Pete Wisdom to the team, uh, throw in this new backstory for Brian Braddock with uh, this information that his dad was turning mutants into weapons. So really, it's it's a lot of setup. At least I have to hope that Ellis didn't actually care about Genosha. Um, <laughs> at least his his apathy or his indifference is a better excuse than no he he did intensely care and he just did a terrible job mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't think he cares yeah. i think i think it's a setting that people were using at this time i think at, i think at this time in in x-men genosha was a place where bad stuff happens like it's a video I, game I, like i don't think yeah yeah i don't think it's i mean the apartheid metaphor is there but i don't even think he's terribly interested in that i think it's a place where bad stuff happens and so it was convenient and, it, it, you know, if it had been 20 years earlier, they'd be in Latveria. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, I think that's how much thought was put into it. I mean, the one grain of it that I like is, like, implicating Brian's family and England and the colonial mm. aspect of it. I mm. think that that has potential. And there's definitely a critique of, like, <laughs> yeah, like the British Secret Service that is going to play through Black, the Black Air storyline. So that aspect of it, I'm like, okay... But the other thing that really bothered me about this issue was whose points of view get centralized. And it's generally the non-mutant characters that's points of view are centralized in this story. Like we get a lot of empathy for the human scientist who's like, oh, like how do I reckon with this guilt and everything? So it's kind of all about his like mutant white guilt. And then Brian is the other central figure. (laughs) And like, there's some like asides about other people like Kurt's like, oh, because he's like Romani. And of course they say gypsy again, like he gets all this race stuff. But like, again, the two major sympathetic points of view are Brian and the other white human scientist. And I thought that was a questionable choice in terms of, again, what we're doing with this metaphor, because it's exoticizing this space, it's keeping the space as a distance, it's a space where, like, you know, the white human characters go to have feelings about their reaction to things like this, but it's not really about the people who live there, and we don't get, like, hardly any perspectives of the people actually being disenfranchised in this conflict so that's very typical like that's not just Warren Ellis that's just tropes that's how we do this type of story but it did stand out to me in the story I just wanted to point it out I don't remember if anyway. it was last issue or two issues ago but someone one of our guests could not tell that Pete Wisdom and I guess it was last issue and Rory were, it, were the same oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just also want to point out, yeah, I, yeah, I think it was last last episode. 
I want to point out that the doctor in this issue, Doctor, I guess it's Philip Moreau, also not Rory or Pete Wisdom, but good luck knowing <laughs> that because because Ken Lashley is not doing you any favors in this issue of differentiating the generic brunette, square jawed, right white man. Like they're like yeah. you know which one which one Brian is. Brian's blonde, and if you're paying close enough attention, Rory's got the streak in his hair. Um, but beyond that. This other doctor and Rory, I, I, I got lost a couple times, and I, and I know there's two of them. My final thought is related to that, so I'll, I'll save it. But um, let's go around and do final thoughts because I'm sure there's, I'm sure we've each got something that we didn't manage to touch on. Um, <laughs> we didn't talk about Sugar Man, which I mean, I don't have any thoughts about it other than like, I have nothing to say. <laughs> other than um, I'm okay if we go the entire rest of our yeah. show. We, we never have impre- to talk about Sugar Man. <laughs> he's an impressive visual and doesn't have a lot of other yeah. point other than that um but you know good visual um anyway yeah let's do final thoughts um let's start with you andrew something that you want to circle back to or something that we didn't get a chance to talk about um maybe just two small things i i think one of the things that i really liked here is that um ellis is slowly but surely bringing out the warlock aspect of doug Locke's personality uh and, and i'm enjoying that shift because i i really didn't like the the staunch doug that we saw in um, um the doug Locke chronicles so seeing that transition i think is really cool and his ability to track that i've enjoyed so seeing gleeful doug Locke in a few key moments i like that uh, and then the other aspect is, that, and this was just a personal reflection, but I, I thought the opening scene was like weirdly emblematic of post-Davis Excalibur because Brian punches a problem that can't be solved by punching and then Megan uses a power she's never had before. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's kind of the go-to since Davis left. So I, I mean, a little dismayed to see it, but I also thought it was a nice encapsulation of, of where those characters are, which is to say in this strange, confused limbo. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, fair. Mav, how about you? Anything you want to say oh, about you? Or oh, I'm also on Megan, comment. and I'm on the exact. Okay, I'm on great. Megan, and I'm on the exact same scene because uh, this one, uh, I, I've I've been waiting patiently to get to the end of the episode because I knew we weren't going to have a whole segment on this. So I just want to to read some some Megan dialogue. Are the mm. generators actually damaged? Could we pull up the up if the engine feed was restored to to the engines and then she says um show me the 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 power feed brian expose them i want to see and then she says hold on brian let me get to these 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 flames shove them out of the way yes a separate cable electricity looking for somewhere to go it's lost its way home and all i have to do is give it a little push yes she's using a power that she's never had before and we don't know why she has it and we're not i mean i we're going to be given a vague explanation that's really a bunch of nothing. But who is talking here? Because Megan can barely read. And I don't know who this person is who suddenly um, who suddenly got a master's in electrical engineering. Um, she's able to jumpstart a hovercraft plane with Shi'ar technology that Brian built yesterday. You know, so how she knows anything about this, like, I, I don't know how she has any of these abilities. She could barely read when we met her. And then the last couple of issues, she's been some weird, you know, not the last couple of issues, but before that, she had transferred into some weird, you know, psychotic, you know, generic image character. And now she's got a science background. 
you know, because yep. we need her to right now. And because no one cares who this character was anymore, including Warren Ellis, who, again, I like as a writer. I, I, you know, I appreciate that Ellis is doing his own thing. But give me some kind of characterization here other than she's going to do some science because we need her to do something to justify that she's on this plane. So why don't we do a thing that should, by all accounts, be much better suited for Doug Locke to do? But OK, Megan's right. here, so Megan will do it yeah sort of those questions that we keep that we keep talking about with megan where it's like well how do we make a strong female character well let's try making her a badass let's try making her a scientist let's try this or that and you're like yeah she was strong before you just had to keep right anyway (laughs) well at this point she's just like she's completely a cipher and we don't Mm -hmm. i don't think i don't think ellis knows what to do with her yet because yeah this part's not his fault she was in shambles even more so than brian she was in shambles Mm -hmm. when he got her so what do you do Mm. with this what was left of this character it doesn't make sense to go back to the you know the megan we saw at the beginning of the series we can't put her into a love triangle with kurt again like that's played out like so we need something to do with her and you know great that she's not whining around going why won't brian marry me okay well he's gonna marry me but he doesn't have the right aura and like it's not doing weird stuff like that anymore so yay (laughs) but but i don't i don't like this version of her character she is the least interesting thing in the book right now for me and she is yeah um she should be one of my favorite characters she was one of my favorite characters but now like if she didn't do that i would have forgotten that she was in the book yep that is very fair uh my final thoughts were just gonna be about pete wisdom and uh he just keeps existing i just i had quite a lot of sympathy for him in the last issue he burned up a lot of that sympathy in this issue my telling people apart issue was the part where he gets shot but then he's fine and i was like wait was that pete because then he was because like his hot knives power doesn't have anything to do with making him impervious to things does it no and he's very much not he's he's, he is very much a swishy regular human kind of person like body wise what happened there i have no idea idea. he got shot with a million bullets and then he was fine yeah yeah Yeah, he used some badass points He's got badass points. He spent some badass points right. to be okay. You know, you could tell it rip- It did rip up his trench coat real good. <laughs> I know. I just, I don't know. That confused me. I read that about five times. But anyway, I was sort of a supporter of Pete in the last issue. I'm down on him in this issue. The coffee thing was really obnoxious. But that's just the nature of Pete. Every time he's one step forward, he's two steps backwards. We will return to this dynamic with this character. Neil, anything that you would like to circle back to or anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you would like to talk about before we conclude our conversation of this issue? Sure. You know what? I'm, I'm going to take up that challenge to talk about Sugar Man. Go um, for it. <laughs> yeah, because you know what? This this is, issue is somehow um, just wonderfully emblematic of what a tire fire x comics were in the mid 90s <laughs> um, you can see you can see um seeds of the stuff that warren ellis really wanted to do you know which we can tell in retrospect now because there are little hints there are notes of what would become Stormwatch or planetary or the authority um where he has you know shadowy government agencies and um, these uh, miserable 
Brits with attitude. But that's waylaid because he has to bring in this bizarre, giant, floating head with limbs. I don't understand how any of it works. Um, who was introduced in an alternate reality, but now he has to be central to the story that Ellis was trying to tell, um, ostensibly about colonialism and, you know, the complicity of one of the main characters of uh, this story, his his dark family legacy. But no, no, we're instead we're going to focus on how Sugar Man is actually to blame. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, just like I can only imagine, you know, I've read stories about how the X office was working at this time, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, people would have, they would have plots and uh, and then an editor would be like, okay, well, but you can't use this character and you have to add this one to the team and we need this villain to be behind it all. Yeah. Um, and you can tell that that is what is happening. Um, it's this incredibly awkward, nonsensical um, marriage of story elements that simply do not make sense together. Yeah, it gets us right back to Sinister. That's like the Sinister problem of like the guy in the chair who's pressing all the buttons that gets revealed retroactively to have been behind everything after all and your mileage on that will vary. (laughs) The problem with Sugar Man, though, and I mean, I don't know. Oh, no, you do have thoughts. Uh, Yeah, well, (laughs) I I talked about it a little bit. Like, first off, I I have no use for him. But here's my question. Like, um, one of my not a not a scholar, a wrestling buddy of mine, one of my one of my pro wrestling friends once said we were watching a pay-per-view and there was a a wrestler came on who into the Royal Rumble, um, which is this weekend as we record but there was a <gasps> there was a special guest in the in the royal rumble and, and and everybody in the room was just like ugh that guy and my friend goes no some kid at home this is his favorite wrestler and he's marking out he's like whoa and, and it's like really and he and and my friend sam goes yes because otherwise he wouldn't be there so hmm. if you are the one guy that sugar man is there for like I, I admitted <laughs> at the top of this show that I'm the one guy that this Strike Force Meridian mm. Recover exists for. It's just there for me. It's literally a favor that Marvel Comics was doing. No one was asking for Strike Force Meridian, not even me. But I saw it and I was like, oh, Strike Force Meridian, have my five dollars, right? Like that's what I did today. So if you are the one guy who bought this comic because hell yeah, Sugar Man then please tweet at us and let us know. I want to know who you are because I don't believe, I just, I refuse to believe that out of everything out of Age of Apocalypse, some of which, you know, not my favorite crossover, but I get that there's a lot of affection for it. A lot of people love Age of Apocalypse. It's when a lot of people jumped on. To me, it was weird, but I, I get why I get why Dark Beast is around. I get why X-Man is around. I do not understand who was looking for Sugar Man. I refuse to believe that anybody was looking for Sugar Man. And that's my problem with it. <laughs> nice reference. Uh, yeah. Well, Sugar Man Hive, come at us if you exist. I'm happy to hear from you. They do not. Um, <laughs> they do not. All right. Before we really close it down, I have a brief letter. Um, this letter from the Sword Strokes letters page is from T. Harrington, and it's about the arrival of Warren Ellis. Dear Sword Strokes, oh joy, all in caps. 
when I read the, about the plot for number 83, I was glad that you had not forgotten the soul sword. But what's this? I look again and notice that the new writer is Warren Ellis from Hellstorm. Happy, happy, joy, joy. Now the greatest and most sinister writer for Marvel writes the only two books I have read faithfully since they first started. And then I'm going to skip some of his letter. He talks about what a badass kid he is. So until Warren leaves, leading the rest of this great creative team to Disney, make mine Marvel. Better yet, make mine Excalibur. Thought that little Disney thing was... Leading um, to Disney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. Anyway, we will wrap things up there. Um, other than to say, Neil, thank you so, so dearly for joining us. It's just such a treat that we could have you on this episode finally after mentioning your work all those times on the pod. Um, before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of what you get up to and where they can find you. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you and what work or projects should they be checking out? New stuff, old stuff, doesn't matter. Remind them. Sure. Uh, well, well, thank you for having me. The, uh, the the easiest place to find me these days, either on Twitter, which is just at my name, Neil Shaminsky, um, or else on TikTok, where I am at Professor Neil. Do you and, dance? Um... I, I do I do not dance. No, I uh, I, act, I have a lot of conversations like uh, those that we were just having for the past hour, actually. Okay, awesome. I will check it out. Well, I'm still not on TikTok, but I can still check it out. And I can still certainly link it in our show notes. And um, the article of yours that we mentioned, I believe people can read on academia.edu. So I'll link that as well. Yeah, the I don't think the International Journal of Comic Art ever made it available electronically. So I threw my own copy up there and nobody has ever asked me to take it down. I've um, done that with my so Joker publication too. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. They have they okay. finally have an online table of contents, but yeah, they don't have the articles online, so you're doing the right thing. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, just thank you so 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 much again, Neil. I love this conversation so much. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. So next, Pride and Wisdom might need a little more of both as they try to survive each other in Excalibur number 88, part one of the Dream Nails trilogy, a classic Pete Wisdom showcase for those of you who enjoy a Pete Wisdom showcase, and uh, our guest for next week certainly does. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another literally awesome convo thank you neil for mutating metaphors with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for our music for our truly epic theme song play us out